0: Before we start the episode, we want to invite you to be part of it. In an upcoming show, we'll dive into the struggle between police and communities of color. We want your questions and concerns around the problem. We'll pose them to one of the experts who spoke on race and policing at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Please record a voice memo or jot out a question and send it to aspenideastogo at gmail.com. It's Aspen Ideas To Go, I'm Trisha Johnson. Jennifer Finney Boylan thinks feminism is playing a major role in the 2016 presidential election, but her students might disagree. Boylan teaches at Barnard College, an all-women's liberal arts institution in New York City.
1: My students, who all identify as feminists, virtually all of them identify as feminists, are not particularly, they're certainly not as, as electrified by the idea of Hillary Clinton becoming the first woman president as I am.
0: Boylan is in her late 50s and says she's thrilled by the idea of a woman president.
1: But my students are very much, you know, their sense is, well, you know, her feminism, maybe she's a feminist, but her feminism is not my feminism. So I I think that's an interesting question, that, that if feminism is a part of this election, what kind of feminism, and will it mean different things to different generations?
0: In today's show, we'll explore the role of feminism in the election, and hear from millennials about what issues matter to them. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that provides a nonpartisan forum for dealing with critical issues. Though Hillary Clinton will be making history by becoming her party's nominee this week, some say using the so-called woman card is a toxic way to score votes for Clinton. A group of women at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June sat down for a discussion about Clinton's run, what it means for women's progress, and why, while she's admired for breaking the glass ceiling, Clinton's unfavorables are high. Jennifer Finney Boylan of Barnard joins author Rebecca Traister, NPR campaign reporter Asma Khalid, President Obama's former deputy campaign manager Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, and Anne Marie Slaughter, president and CEO of New America. Journalist and Jezebel.com founder Anna Holmes moderates. Rebecca Traister begins the conversation. She penned Big Girls Don't Cry, the election that changed everything for American women, about the 2008 presidential race. She explains how feminism has played a role in elections long before 2016.
2: This is not a sudden reemergence of feminism on the scene, though I would argue that elections, earlier elections have been a big part of creating its reemergence. And um, actually, the election that I would pin a lot of it on is the 2004 election and the campaign around Howard Dean. As many of you who who pay attention to feminism know, there was a period of deep, chill, um, anti-feminist backlash, you know, sort of from the early to mid-80s through the 90s. And many of us, I think, probably on this panel, grew up in that era. And when I was growing up, feminism was really, really out of fashion. (laughs) And it was just like a freezer. I grew up in a world in which, at a very crunchy, liberal high school, you know, every statement was preceded by I'm not a feminist but um, and then around the two th- what happened that was fascinating around the 2004 election is that it was the emergence of the, of the net roots and a lot of young people went online and started organizing around the Howard Dean campaign specifically and in a kind of echo of things that had happened in some of the mid 20th century social movements around the anti-war and civil rights movement in which women felt that their voices were not being taken as seriously within the net roots movement around Howard Dean there were a number of women who felt that perhaps their perspectives weren't being taken as seriously and they began to splinter off and began to form the beginnings of what would become, and this was on the political and activism side, what, what we would now refer to as the feminist blogosphere. So that was coming out of the 2004 election and then there was this, this was around the time that, that some journalists started to write about feminism as a beat again, which hadn't really been done as common practice since the 1970s and early 80s. Anna, was the founder of Jezebel in, what, 2007? Yeah. Right. And then the election in 2008, which brought all kinds of issues around gender and race and class to the fore because it was this remarkable campaign on the Democratic side between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and then Sarah Palin um, that further energized uh, a conversation around women in politics. So I agree that that feminism is very much in play right now but this is a conversation that has been developing And I do think the roots of it are around politics but obviously it also extends to culture um you know social media has been a big driver of it so I I think it's predated this election
3: well the the, the subtitle of your first book was um the the election that changed everything for American women and that was in reference to the 2008 election so um, I guess my question is: Do you still believe? Do you still believe that? Do you think? Yeah, I think it changed. It did
2: not fix everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> or really anything. But yeah, I think it. I think it certainly shifted the way that we talk about. I think the way we talk about Hillary Clinton this time around is very different from how we talked about her in 2008.
0: Though feminism has played a role in the past, Hillary Clinton's nomination this week is a first in American history. Still, young people may not see it as as big a milestone as older generations. Jennifer Finney Boylan.
1: I think it's undeniable that um, feminism is part of this election. But uh, an open question, I think, is what kind of feminism? Um, I teach at Barnard, and I'm seeing that my students, who uh, all identify as feminists, virtually all of them identify as feminists, are not particularly... They're certainly not as as electrified by the idea of Hillary Clinton becoming the first woman president as I am, and and, and so I'm in my late 50s. Women of my generation, uh, I I'm you know I'm just thrilled by the idea that this is an historic moment. But my students are very much li- are, are much like uh, you know their senses. Well, you know her feminism, maybe she's a feminist, but her feminism is not my feminism. And so I, I think that's an interesting question. That if feminism is a part of this election, what kind of feminism, and what will it and will it mean different things to different generations?
3: Anne-Marie, I wanted to ask well,
4: you that, <laughs> Hello, Anne-Marie. Yeah, Jennifer knows this exactly. So I was the Barnard commencement speaker uh, this year, and when I was announced uh, in February, I was protested, uh, and a number of students right. and faculty sent a petition to the Barnard... No. <laughs> a Barnard administration that basically said that I was a representative of white corporate feminism, one feminism. And for, those, for their purposes, Cheryl Sandberg and I are the same person, right? <laughs> We're quite different in many ways. But, but their point was, I want an intersectional, inclusive feminism. And so to the extent I see feminism as part of this, I see my generation trying very hard not to make this Election about the woman card about to argue Hillary Clinton will be a great president because she'll be a great president not we're not voting for her because (laughs) Again not in in my personal capacity New America again I have to say this every time it's true we're a nonpartisan organization But I really you know we don't want people voting for her because she's a woman we know that's toxic in this election that's not the way to pitch it uh, and yet, then at the same time, having this really kind of painful debate to, with younger women whose goals I share, but I want to say to them, "Boy, you don't know—you have no idea how hard it was to get here, right? If you can not elect a woman who was first lady and and sec- and senator from New York and secretary of state and has already run once and has all that behind her, and we can't elect her."
3: I have no idea when we'll finally elect a woman.
4: So it's this complicated, it's about a woman, but it's not about a woman.
3: Um, so do you, think, do you think that the messaging either by the Clinton campaign or Clinton supporters should really shy away from from pointing out the historic nature of her candidacy? I mean, I realize that perhaps we, we shouldn't be uh, exhorting voters to... to vote for her because she's female, but I don't think, I don't personally think that that should be something that's off the table in terms of part of the conversation. Um, I don't think it should be off the table, and and certainly, you know, when the week
4: she won the nomination, I certainly had chills down my spine. I mean, it it was touching history, you know, it really was touching history, but I think, so that you don't take it off the table, but if you... She's not running as the first woman candidate to be president. She's running as candidate to be president who will be the
3: best, most experienced president. And it's a hard line to draw. Um, Asma, so so your work you focus on the intersection of, of of demographics and politics. And so, how do you see this? How do you, you're mostly talking to voters, not not, not to the candidates Precisely, or to their yeah. staff. So and, can and you talk a little bit types about types of yeah. women
5: voters? Yeah. And... So I would say, with the conversation of feminism in this election, to me, what I have consistently heard from voters, uh, particularly after who we would have as the presumptive nominees became very clear, is that I think the way we are seeing feminism discussed has a lot less to do with issues right now, I would say, because of the, the choices that we have, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And what I have consistently heard from candidates is about tone. And I think that that really benefits Hillary Clinton. So for example, I spent a lot of time recently in the suburbs of Ohio. The suburbs, I would argue, are really crucial uh, for Hillary Clinton. They um, tend to lean Republican, and I think her campaign believes that they could make some inroads there in the suburbs. Uh, And a number of those women pointed to ads that were running already in the state of Ohio where some of Donald Trump's own words about women were being used against him, and uh, I spoke with a number of Republican women who told me that they, uh, you know, necessarily were not Hillary Clinton supporters, and they didn't agree with her about everything. But the thing that held them back today, at this moment in time, for cat from casting a vote for Donald Trump were those ads. So it was not about issues; it was purely about tone and message and how he was talking about women. Um, so to me, that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways. But I will say, I. I'm intrigued by sort of this idea of not running as the first woman president or running as the first woman president, partly because I, I look back at the comparisons to 2008 and identity politics and the degree to which President Obama had really both historic levels of African American turnout, but also amazing levels of support from African Americans. And you know, Hillary Clinton's demographic, to be blunt, I mean, it's white women. And white women, no, African American older women. (laughs) Older African American American women, very strong. But her identity—if we're talking about identity politics, right—is Hillary Hillary Clinton. She is trying. I guess what's interesting to me is her her identity, right? Is a white woman, and that group has gone for Republicans. It's a group that Mitt Romney won by fourteen points four years ago, Mm. and it's a group that I think she believes she can make inroads with. But it's a group that you know is not bending over backwards to support her. And that I find very interesting. Right. That's one of the ironies
2: of the fact that she is, I mean, she is regarded, and in fact, many of her supporters are often um, tagged as, you know, older white women who just want to see their own identities and their own priorities and perspectives reflected in the Oval Office. And the irony exactly is that married white women vote Republican consistently. Um, And that, in fact, the people who have made her the nominee – are women of color? Uh, that's the Democratic base and unmarried women, including unmarried white women, actually vote Democratic. Well, they vo- they voted for they voted for Obama. They vote Democratic. M- marital status, um, and race and eth- ethnicity have a huge impact. I want to say one word in defense of millennials. I want to say something about the generational divide very quickly. I'm not a millennial. I'm 41, but um, I-, I think that uh, a couple two things sometimes get lost. One is the sh- Anne Marie talked about um, this lack of a sense of if not now, when, and what we've been through, and like what the impossibility of the past, in the past of a woman being elected president. And one of the things that I think we sometimes forget is that if you're a young person, if you're in your 20s, Your political consciousness, your adult political consciousness, the years during which you've probably been paying attention to politics, are years in which Barack Obama has been the president, in which the person who was his major rival for the presidency was Hillary Clinton, um, and then Sarah Palin competed against him, in which you've seen the candidacies of Herman Cain, of Michelle Bachman, of Ben Carson, of Marco Rubio. For them, the view... Of who's out there in the political landscape. It's not the endless sea of white men that. Is the view that many of us who are older have. So that sense of urgency that people, that older people s- seem to say, like, how can't, how, how do you not see how crucial this is? If you're a young person, you may not see how crucial and impossible it seems. And the other thing is that I think we sometimes forget that the clash of ge- there's always generational difference, um, and that it's really necessary to moving forward. So that you need to have a youthful energy behind. Let's let's burn it all down, let's have a revolution. And you need to have the more pragmatic perspectives that, that is born perhaps of having seen the sausage made. So, and they balance each other out. So that you, if you only had the pragmatism, we probably wouldn't get anywhere very fast. And if you only had the revolutionary spirit, you'd try to have a revolution and get stopped and then give up. And you need both of them working together. So that's my defense of the millennial and the generational difference.
0: Jennifer O'Malley Dillon is a field and organizing veteran. She served on five presidential campaigns and in 2012 oversaw the largest field, education, political outreach, and data analytics organization in the history of presidential campaigns. Moderator Anna Holmes gets her input on how the Clinton campaign should move forward.
3: Uh, We were just kind of talking about Trump and and, and, and some of the techniques that the Hillary Clinton campaign has deployed against him already. What do you think she should do? Do um, against him. Do you think that she's been doing enough? And how do you see how do you see the rest of the of the of the general playing out with regards to how he approaches her? Like, what would a debate look like?
0: <laughs>
3: how long do we have to talk about that? <laughs> you have as um, much time as you want.
6: Well, first I want to just say you know I come at this from two perspectives: one as a person, and two as someone that works in political campaigns. And as a person, I want to support Hillary Clinton for any reason that I want to, and you know whether she's a woman or whether you know, I've met her, whether she speaks to the fact that I have two little girls, you know, whatever that is, I want that to be fine. And that's that's my personal choice, and I think that's part of what this is about. I think for an operative, and thinking about what Hillary Clinton needs to do, I think we have to really think about this beyond just big segments, beyond age, beyond gender, um, but really get underneath at an individual level. What millennials want, what what I want, also not a millennial, um, you know, what uh, older people want, what anyone wants is to be listened to, to feel like they're a part of a campaign, to feel like the things that matter to them in their lives are understood, um, that they have a voice, that they have a place and an outlet to see themselves and see the values that they share, be part of that. And so I think that part of what opportunity we have right now and what Hillary Clinton has in the general election is to really show the stark contrast between her, the Democratic Party, the values and the issues she cares about and who she is and what she's gonna do for this country and, and what Donald Trump is going to do and the Republicans that are standing behind him. But I think from a strategy perspective, we really have to talk to Jen O'Malley, Dylan, which is my... Anyway, you can call me Jennifer Dillon, but that's my mother-in-law's name, so I get confused who you're talking to. Um... (laughs) But, you know, me and what I care about and what what matters in my life, but also how I want to be part of the campaign. Do I want to be an activist? Do I just want to read about it more? Do I want to see, am, am I going to check it out on TV or is it going to be online? And then how do we recognize that there are very big differences even across this stage, across this room, that she needs to spend time and her campaign needs to spend time listening to and tapping into? And she can't do that alone, obviously, and so how does she build an organization and an operation to allow all of these voices to be part of? for young people to, to have the conversations about where they see themselves and, and what they're looking at and then have a place for that to go and actually turn that into not just talking about what we care about, but what we're gonna go do about it. And so I think she's done a, a really great job of doing that. I think she's built an organization in all 50 states where there's a lot more outlet for people to be engaged and be part of that. And I think that she's really spent a lot of time, whether it's big events, but in particular, really talking to people um, at small gatherings and small events to hear what they care about and to talk about them. And I think that's really where we're gonna see the impact and the difference between um, you know her and, and, and Trump in terms of debates look i think the debates are gonna be tough um i, I think all of this can be tough i think that's the biggest thing to say i think um the the reason she could lose is because we take for granted how hard this is going to be or we look and see how much money she has versus he has or how crazy the stuff is that he says and we think oh god there's no way people could support him um and and that's many people could see that and that when we become complacent that's when we we have, uh, you know, a chance of of not doing what we need to do. But in terms of the debates, I think, you know, he is such a loose cannon. He is someone that's going to try to, in my mind, prod her and and say things that are outlandish and go to all the nasty, terrible things that you could possibly go to. And I think that, you know, we've seen her at Benghazi. She can handle, you know, 11 hours of that. But I think it's going to be really important to show the, the two differences in the stark contrast when they're on the stage together.
3: Do you think he'll go for openly misogynist commentary towards her on the debate stage? I mean, when you say he's going to push her buttons or or say provocative things.
6: I I was one of the people that thought he'd be smarter um, and, you know, really moderate himself coming into the general and, you know, go to a place that he tried to rebuild himself um so i've been wrong um about that which is a good thing um for what i do and what i believe in um you know i am not sure that i envision him calling her crooked hillary on the on the debate stage but do i think that he's going to go through the list of the tick list of everything that uh, has ever come up and go at it one after another and not talk substance and keep coming back at that um in ways that are just um so beyond what normal discourse should be Uh, absolutely i think he would
0: Anne-Marie Slaughter worked with Hillary Clinton from 2009 to 2011, when she served as policy planning director at the U.S. State Department. She was the first woman to hold such a role. She talks about that experience with Anna Holmes.
3: And she's a complicated figure, as everybody knows. Uh, I want to know if you can tell me what frustrates you the most about her and what frustrates you the most about public conversation about her.
4: You don't really think I'm gonna answer that first question, do you? Maybe. So I have to say, I, I didn't know Hillary Clinton at all until she interviewed me in December of 2008, and she hired me two weeks later. So I had met her once, and she wanted. I mean, this is very Hillary Clinton. She wants to break every glass ceiling she could. There had never been a woman at policy planning. Policy planning is the big think job. It's the job that was first held by George Kennan, and it's been held by a series of men who are major foreign policy thinkers. And she didn't know me. She didn't put somebody she knew in she went and fe- went looking for a big foreign policy thinker and she'd read an article I'd written um, and I think that's telling because she there's never any lack of people who want those jobs so she so she hired me and I, I spent six months just really trying to get to know her and I'd never been in government or in a campaign so I had a lot to learn uh, at, but uh, you know I say and it's true uh, um, you know my respect for her went steadily upward and she uh, what I came away thinking was she gets she has this reputation and there's a lot of gender in this, right? Hard worker. How often have we heard that about women? right? Knows her brief, does her homework, uh, kind of diligent, the good student. She rarely gets credit for big think. But she changed my thinking more than I changed hers. She, I came in as a as a national security person, and I left believing that got, that development issues were as important as national as traditional diplomacy, which is a big think thing. So I, um, you know, does she get irritated at times? Yes. Um, we were talking earlier, though. She's persuadable. She is definitely persuadable. She may not be happy about being persuaded. I mean, if I, if you're art, but you know when you're working for. Her, she may get irritated, but if you hold on and keep advancing your view, sh- you can persuade her, which, which uh, uh, was, I thought, something, something important. In terms of, you know, what, what frustrates me the most so much, I mean, just so much, that the double standards are just Thank you. unbearable. I mean, you know, when... when <laughs> the, one that, the one that got me the most is when she's being accused of being shrill and Bernie, I don't care what you think about Bernie. You can love him or hate him, but the man had one register, right? And it, it's, it, it, you know, it's it's loud, it's obnoxious, it's ranting. If Hillary Clinton did that at all, and she did it sort of once in one debate, and just got nailed for being the banshee, the harlot, and all of that stuff. So I'm, it still bothers me, and it bothered me in two thousand eight. I was a Barack Obama supporter, and it was the kind of just flagrant sexism with the way she was treated that really reawoke my Virginia feminist roots and I just said this just this can't stand Uh, and there's still a lot of it
3: do you think it's it's being it's being explicated and called out more though uh, now than it was in 2008
4: I absolutely do and the major thing you see is so much less commentary on her physical appearance it's really striking. I mean, that message has gotten through unless you're prepared to talk about Donald Trump or whoever else. So yes, I think it is better. But it's you know, it's like overt bias and subconscious bias. A lot of the overt stuff is we've gotten rid of, but there's a tremendous amount of subconscious stuff going on or semi-conscious stuff.
3: Uh, so Rebecca and I were talking earlier about um, the fact that uh, Hillary was, was voted the most admired woman Um, In December of 2015, it was the 20th time she'd been, uh, I don't want to say it's an award, but bestowed that honor. And uh, how it's possible for someone to be so admired and yet yet have such high unfavorables. And uh, what I want to know is if someone can answer that question, but also too, if if, if the rest of the panelists have those kind of complicated feelings about, about her and if you can tease them out a bit.
5: And I can talk a little bit about conversations with voters. I think that that's a fairly common perception that that Democratic women who are supporting her have expressed to me. Um, You know, people have told me that they don't trust her, that they uh, don't know if she's always genuine, but they admire tremendously what she's accomplished. Um, I did a series where I I was actually going around to, as I was saying, a lot of suburban communities in Ohio both interviewing you know, Republicans and Democrats. And to me, what was so interesting about the conversations around Hillary is that people who admit that they will vote for her expressed a displeasure with her, or maybe even just um, not an enthusiasm or a love for their vote, to cast their vote for her. But yet they felt that she was tremendously experienced and had accomplished a lot. There is that disconnect. Um, what it's attributable to, you know, I mean, I. I don't. I don't know what it's exactly attributable. I mean, I think part of it may be that Hillary as a candidate does not. And I don't. I don't even know how to say this. I mean, look. If we could look at the 2008 election, I don't think that she energizes or creates the enthusiasm writ large as she campaigns the way that other candidates did. I was uh, in Ohio earlier this week when Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren were campaigning together in Cincinnati. That is unlike. Any other Hillary Clinton event that I had ever attended in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, they, they had to shut down the venue because it had filled to capacity. Uh, some young women, millennial women, were jumping up and down as Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton took the stage together. I, I think that Hillary Clinton struggles as a campaigner. She is not a natural campaigner. Who, she says that herself. Yeah. 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 And I think that she, maybe that yeah. is part of the sort of incompatibility that people have, where they say that they will vote for her, but they don't, they're not necessarily excited by that option. Because she
1: has a history. I mean, what she has is uh, is a resume and a um, a long line of accomplishments. And in in a strange way, in our in campaigns, what we want is is a a dream. You know, we we want. uh, You know, if you if you think about Barack Obama, you know, or Bernie Sanders, or um, I don't know, just. a lot of, a lot of yeah, I mean, people like the idea of voting for a dream. And Hillary, I mean, I think Hillary. I mean, I see her as a dream, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people see her as, in a way, her disadvantage is that she's accomplished so much. And and we really, in a way, we don't vote for accomplishments. We have, we vote for an idea and for and for a, and for a hope.
6: Can I? I just want to add to that. I think one. Of the challenges is that she is so well known, but she's not known well at all. And what I mean by that is, we know the stories, we know the time, you know, the, the work that she's done. We know when her pre- her husband was president, but I don't know that people have gotten to the root of, um, you know, her values and where she started from. And I think you see that a lot in the messaging. You see that in the first ads that the campaign put out when they moved into the general election. These were talking about, you know, her family, her life, um, you know, the struggles she went through. Um, what drives her her faith and and i think that that's something that you know, maybe people at some level know, but that's not where they put their focus on. And it's also not what's talked about as much. And so I think it really is going to require the campaign and Hillary herself to make that very clear. And you see that often, but I think that that's going to be an important level of this. And I think the real question is for these people that admire her, but maybe are not sure that, you know, uh, she's she's the one that they have their heart and soul in and, and, and don't feel the same way that they were when they voted for the president. Um, now, you know, w- can they get to know her? Can they see a different side of her. And I think there's real opportunity for that, in part because she's running against Donald Trump. And I can't see a starker contrast between the values that she fights for, has fought for, and where she comes from, and where he has. And in some ways, maybe he's the perfect foil for her to be able to to show people who she really is in a way that they haven't seen uh, as often.
3: Is the idea that she that she's, uh, feels unknown attributable to her? Or is it because we expect women to give more of themselves. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to know if, if this is like a gendered expectation. I mean, I, I don't know that I know Barack Obama any more than I know Hillary Clinton. Um, and and I don't know that we'd be talking about him that way, although some Republicans did. You know, they they, they described him as being a, a cipher of sorts, that he was you know, going so far as to say that he was a, a secret Muslim who wanted to bring Sharia law. But um, Rebecca, i want to I want to of address this to you and every and everyone else, but it seems to me that I, I I'm not sure that Hillary's problem with connecting with voters is her own fault. She may not be a good well, campaigner. She's
2: not the easiest campaigner. so i have i've have this is sort of a combination of what Jen was just saying and your question about her popularity and then her high unfavorables. So I think that. The public is very resistant to absorbing her as a human being because those messages about who she is whether and she has tried it from every angle. The first ad not of the general election but over a year ago before she did her speech at Liberty Island and entered it the primary campaign was like it it was Marian Wright Edelman talking about her youthful work for the Children's Defense Fund. It was about her, her speech was about her mother she's tried it as the grandmother, she's tried it as the mother, she's tried it as talking about her work for the Children's Defense Fund, she's tried talking Better youth. People are resistant. It's not that she won't, t- she isn't comfortable with the press. She does not like the press. She doesn't you know there is that's a very valid critique and she's not a comfortable big stage campaigner but it is also true that she has tried to let people know who she is and that people are resistant to understanding her as a full human Mm -hmm. and that that's a real challenge i think she can make a hundred ads about her life like and and people are still going to have a hard time understanding that she's a human being because there is there remains in our head something fundamentally incomprehensible about an ambitious woman who wants to be the president of the United States. And that's not that's not a model of femininity that we understand and it's not a presidential model that we yet understand, which is one of the reasons that these things are so important because the individual figures, even though they're very limited in their symbolic and representational power, begin to, to change our view. And the question about her, I have been obsessed as somebody who's been writing about Hillary for over a decade, about this weird, when she has a job, when she's doing her job, People love her. She is she is popular. Her favorability ratings are high. Everybody thinks she's terrific. They make memes, texts from Hillary. She's a badass. We love Hillary. And then that was true when she was in the Senate. It's true that she's in the State Department. And then she starts running, and her unfavorables go through the roof. Nobody trusts her. Nobody knows her. She's every single thing that... bad. And she has done a number of really questionable things, as many politicians who've been in public life have. Um, every single one of those begin things begin to define her more than anything positive anybody's ever felt and I've wrestled with this is it just we like a woman when she's doing a job but not when she's in forward motion do we not like her when she's competing against a man and Elizabeth Warren to me has recently been the key to this because people throughout this campaign have said to me no but it's not this woman if it were only Elizabeth Warren Elizabeth Warren's a great and I've been saying over and over again yeah but you forget when she was running for the Senate She was, she was written about in exactly the same terms that Hillary Warren, is, Warren. Elizabeth Warren. When she was running for her Massachusetts Senate seat, everybody now says, no, everybody loves Elizabeth Warren. It's not, you know, no. When she was running for the Massachusetts Senate, you can look this up. There are tons of stories about her being a wooden candidate. She's not a natural on the stump. She reads as elite. She doesn't connect to voters. She's, she, was, she was written about as a very bad politician when she was campaigning for that Massachusetts Senate seat. Then she got in the Senate. We all level Elizabeth Warren. The fascinating thing happened last week, that when she endorsed her, And and she's been written about, for example, in the New York Times and other places as basically like the Pope right now. Everybody has to go kiss her ring. She's so popular. Everybody needs her blessing. Everybody loves Elizabeth Warren. It is completely understood that everybody loves Elizabeth Warren on the left. Last week, when she endorsed Hillary, she gave an interview to Rachel Maddow. And at the end of that interview, Rachel Maddow says, this this is a great interview, and she says, you know, Ed Rendell's been out saying, like, you couldn't be the president. Like, you know, the question of, is she going to be the vice presidential candidate? Um, you're not prepared enough, you're not experienced enough to be the president. You, tell me, do you think you could be the president? And Elizabeth Warren ver- just says, yeah, of course I could be the president. We're like It was great. It was no apology, no breath, no... Yeah, of course I could be the president. So <laughs> the next, it was either the next day or the day after. The New York Times writes a story about Elizabeth Warren. You can look this up. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is imperious as she walks through the Senate halls. She doesn't talk to people. She's cold. She does it. Okay. It, suddenly, there's a new Elizabeth Warren figure. And she is a chilly person who does not connect. And I was like, there it is. That's a thing. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it is a woman announcing she is capable and would be the best for the job. Which is fundamentally what a campaign is. Because you're out there on a stage saying, I'm the better person than, this, than all these other people. I'm the most qualified for this job. And Warren did it in the context of the Maddow interview, where she said, of course, I could be the president. It... We it, that woman becomes alien to us. Oh. The woman who goes out there and says, I'm the most qualified for this, I can do this, becomes alien to us, like, instantaneously. Totally. Hmm. Anyway, that's, my, that's my new theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll just add to that, Hillary's generation,
4: uh, which she's 10 years older than I am, we were taught that, right? We were taught that completely. I always tell the story of my father saying, and he to be fair to my father, he says he was joking. I'm going to believe him. But when I when I you know went out to play tennis with a boy at 14, it was don't lose your head and win, right? I mean, it was all about you cannot put yourself forward as an equal to a man. You will never get a man, and that's still true, right? It's you can't be openly ambitious. And she was raised with that completely, even if she hadn't been. You're right. The the, vis- the It's a it's
0: very deep. That's Anne Marie Slaughter, Rebecca Traster. Anna Holmes, Jennifer Finney-Boylan, Asma Khalid, and Jennifer O'Malley Dillon speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival in late June. The women talked about how millennials' perspectives of feminism and the 2016 election vary from their own. In a separate discussion at the Ideas Festival, a group of millennials sat down to talk about what issues matter to them this election. The talk, dubbed the Millennial Agenda, includes University of Chicago student Forrest Sill, Buzzfeed executive editor Saeed Jones, 21-year-old immigration activist Jessica Contreras, and Vox correspondent Liz Plank. NPR's Osma Khalid moderates.
5: I should say that we are all um, millennials, myself included. I, I want to start with just a really quick uh, round robin. Maybe Forrest, if we could start with you and just take a quick minute to Identify for you, uh, both maybe individually or maybe your friend circle, what issue or issues are most important in this presidential election cycle? And we can just go down the list.
7: Um, yeah, so I think the issues that are, uh, millennials are most focused on are largely issues they see that their parents haven't dealt with appropriately. And obviously the biggest one is global warming, and um, uh, that's clearly an issue that uh, affects people a hundred years from now, uh, way more than it's affecting people today. And I think millennials are upset that it hasn't been uh, really handled. And it's, uh, the evidence has been clear for a long time. And that's uh, their issue. Absolutely. Um, I'm 30
8: years old, um, so I think when I think of my segment of the kind of millennial generation, um, we're certainly thinking about economics and debt, what is sustainable. Um, right now, I think a lot of millennials are getting used to making it do and creating new ways of paying bills and um, you know using apps, for example, to start you know new businesses. But what about when we need to raise families? What about when we're ready to own homes? Will that be possible? So personally, in addition to causes like dealing with police brutality, and um, diversity across different industries. I think we're really looking at economic policies that will allow us to pursue the American dream and perhaps the way our parents and grandparents were able to.
9: Um, well, being that I am an immigrant, I'm an immigrant rights activist, uh, I think it's no, um, no doubt that my biggest concern is immigration uh, mainly because I only have a work permit. Um, I have no legal status, I can only work. And I would like to be able to continue studying um, and get back to my community, which kind of makes it hard right now because I have to work and then I have to pay out of pocket um, when I would rather, you know, be able to get a college degree um, and do the things that I want to do, like start a nonprofit. So...
10: Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to start with a comment about the, the the label millennial, which I think is very funny. I, I worked inside uh, a newsroom at, at Mike where we called it the M word. Like we were told and uh, I, I agreed with that direction at a certain point to not use the term millennials to speak to millennials because millennials wouldn't click on those headlines and be interested in those articles and wouldn't share an article with the M word in it because they, uh, you know, begrudgingly didn't uh, want to be identified that way. So I think that that's pretty interesting. I don't know if. Um, uh, any other generation resented their label as much. Um, but, but, but yeah, for, for me and, and I guess for, for a lot of young women, I, I think it's, it's, it's women's issues are, are very pressing uh, when it comes to things like abortion and ideas around birth control and, and access to reproductive services um, in a lot of ways. In our uh, lifetime, it's gone back. Uh, we've had a really great uh, decision come out of the Supreme Court uh, in the last couple weeks. Um, but in the last couple years, it's just been one bad decision after another. And we now have a presidential candidate talking about uh, you know, punishing women for having abortions, and then taking it back, and then saying we should punish. Like, uh, so, so I think there's a lot of uncertainty around those issues. And, and that is scary for a lot of young women.
8: I think, too, it's it, it's worth saying. I mean, you can even see, right, like the, the folly of, like, the idea of a millennial agenda. Look at the diversity of ideas and concerns. And I think one thing that is fair for this generation, and, again, it spreads. People who are 18 years old to 35 years old, that's a huge gap, right? But I think, in general, you see people reaching out and trying to look into... Uh, conversations and issues that may not directly impact their lives but recognizing that we all are in this together and I think that idea of of collaboration of of listening more to groups that you know you may not be a part of um, is something this generation seems to take pretty seriously
0: Millennials are the largest living generation in the country, and they make up about a third of eligible voters this election. They're the most secular and diverse generation in American history. But will they show up to the polls in November? Again, Asma
5: Khalid. I hear so much about sort of the potential of millennial voters, what millennials are interested in, sort of what our generation is interested in. But um, but look, I mean, I know I talk to people who don't, who don't want to vote. Um, do you all have that experience? And I'm wondering... How do you sort of engage with the idea that there's a lot of potential, but maybe you know, your generation, our generation will not necessarily turn out in ways that will be able to affect this election?
10: Well, I, I mean, young people are, are are apathetic about politics. Young young people are hungry for change. Um, they're energized, uh, and I don't think are apathetic about anything else, um, but sadly don't see, uh, and, and I'm speaking I mean, in very general terms, a lot of young people don't see the political system as a way to enact the change that they want to see in the world. Um, and they see a Congress that doesn't can't even pass a Zika bill before they go on vacation for the whole summer, and the world is just left hanging. Um, they see um, you know, a, a 14-hour filibuster and get excited and, and watch it on social media and then think that there's going to be change. And it's, no, it's the same thing because this side wants to get elected and that side wants to get elected and that's why politicians do what they do. Um, and so that's why you see a really huge drop in, in, in interest in, in getting engaged in politics. There are not a lot of young people who are interested in becoming politicians. They are interested in going to Silicon Valley or becoming entrepreneurs. And so that's the route that they see in terms of, again, enacting social change. Um, And so to me, the the low voter turnout is a a symptom of that. If young people believed in in, in our political system, they'd be more likely to turn out to vote. I think that they don't think that their vote matters.
9: I, I do agree with the end uh, that definitely a lot of um, people around me uh, are, that are my age, they kind of do have that feeling where, okay, um, does my vote really matter? Like if I, or I voted um, last time and I didn't really see what change, you know. Um, but I, from my point of view, of what, uh, what I do in the community, uh, I can say that I think that this year we're gonna have a big um, Latino voter turnout for, for young adults. Um, there's a lot of people just turning 18. There's a lot of people that are older than 18 um, that are Latinos, and the, the, what drives us—I say us because I do voter registration—I um, try to get people to go out to vote—is that we are doing this for our families. You know, maybe my friend can't vote, maybe my mom can't vote, um, but I can go out and vote for her. You know, I can lift up those voices, and that's one of the biggest things that in my community I see that. Um, is pushing us millennials to go out and to vote um, and to have a say in some form of way.
8: Yeah. Um, I, see, uh, I I'm Saeed, my name means um, happy and fortunate in Arabic, so I try to be optimistic when possible, um, and <laughs> that is certainly a fight during this election season. Yeah. Um, I see, I think there are three reasons actually why I think millennials are going to get out and vote. I think one, uh, Donald Trump scares the hell out of a lot of people, and in particular, young voters of color, um, women, certainly people who care about immigration, you know, as a black gay man, I mean, Orlando is very much on my mind, and seeing the way all of these conversations, it's not just rhetoric, it is real, you know, Um, and so I think a lot of people are going to step up, and you certainly see Latino voters registering, you know, in in pretty high amounts. Um, I think Hillary Clinton, um, as a potential president, is going to be an important, important draw for certainly a lot of women, but also a lot of people who want to believe, however imperfect she is as a person and politician, that perhaps there is a bit of hope. Maybe, there's another opportunity for us to get this this American project right. Um, so I think they're gonna turn out. And then there's my generation. I grew up in Texas. So uh, George W. Bush was my governor when I was coming through um, school. And then I saw you know, him um, enter the White House. And then my generation got to finally vote and we saw you know, two terms of um, President Barack Obama. And so I think if you are certainly like in the latter part of the millennials, you've seen this amazing range of politics. And I think you see what happens when you feel that your leader isn't representing you. And,
7: Um, I think we're going to turn up because we don't want to feel that way again. And I will quickly add, kind of going off Liz's point, I mean, young people have social media and and, and no other group of young people had social media. And that's a way for us to be politically involved and engaged in a way that's not voting. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people would say that voting is the highest form of, of political engagement, but... But, you know, posting on social media is political engagement as well. And I think t- to, say that, to say that one's better than the other, that's a value judgment. But, but to, to say that vote, uh, young people aren't politically engaged because they don't vote, that's just not true.
5: That's a really interesting point for us. I spent some time recently in Cleveland interviewing young African-American activists who are um, protesting for, around criminal justice reform. They're sort of very actively involved, and one could make the argument – more actively politically involved than simply going up and showing up on election day. But for some of them, they, as Liz was saying, didn't see a point in voting. They didn't feel like it was actually going to affect their lives.
10: I, I wanna, let's go ahead. Well, yeah. And one, one just to jump off that point, there is a correlation between, I mean, f- Facebook users are more politi- po- like politically engaged, and, and Facebook users are actually more willing, uh, or more likely to vote. And so there is also the correlation. I think we can't uh, let people think that, you know, liking or posting a status on Facebook is all young people are into and they think that that makes a difference. They're, they're, they're you know, influencing their friends and also, um, and, 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 and we've seen movements like Black Lives Matter. I mean, use social media to change the platforms of candidates. I mean, there was a Black Lives Matter plank uh, on the Bernie Sanders website after Black Lives Matter um, activists used the internet and, and also real life protests to, to, to enact that change.
8: In, in policy. And I'd add too, I mean, I, I tend to think of social media as enacting. I do think it's political engagement. It's the right, to, you know, it's assembly, it's petition, it's kind of collecting ideas so that there's a sense of uh, data for how many people feel a certain way. But also, I think a lot of young people are going to be motivated by watching what's happening in Europe with mm. Brexit and seeing how young voters who overwhelmingly voted right, to remain and how they feel now, at seeing that. Um, the voting generation that is going to have to live with the fallout of this decision for the shortest um, period of time voted most overwhelmingly for the UK to leave. And so I think, you know, young people again, like social media has brought news into all of our lives in a way that's much more tangible and it's all over the place. It's not just the newspaper at the breakfast table anymore.
0: Which candidate will millennials choose come November? And why do they vote the way they do? Asma Khalid of NPR continues the conversation.
5: So let's talk a bit about the November election then in terms of how candidates are addressing the concerns of, of our generation. Uh, I think sometimes when people think of millennials, they think of overeducated, underemployed, you know, coffee baristas. I mean, there's sort of very negative associations of who I think this generation is, particularly when it comes to education levels. Mm. And one of the things that I find really interesting is when you dig into the data uh, a majority of millennials still do not have a traditional four-year college degree. And yet we continue to hear the candidates talk uh, to us through the lens of student debt or college affordability, which no doubt are very important you know, issues. But I'm wondering for you all, I mean, how does that affect, or the way that candidates are talking about the issues that you care about, affect how you feel about not only voting, but about the particular candidates that you have to vote for this November?
7: I think a huge thing, I will just say one huge thing for millennials and I, you know I have no idea if this happens to other generations too, but I think you definitely see it this election cycle is authenticity and they really care about treating being treated as like a full-fledged adult which we are, but um and also not being pandered to and I don't know if old people don't like to be pandered to, but but we definitely don't and I think you saw this with the wow. um the uh the uh, the not my abuela hashtag after Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Was, Can you fill folks in on that? Yeah, real quick. I, uh, well, I just know there was some backlash to to something that Hillary Clinton did that was perceived as pandering to the Hispanic community.
5: Yeah, just do <laughs> you want to fill folks yeah, in real quick, just so that they know the backstory? Um, yeah.
9: So, I think from what I remember, um, she made this little video of kind of like how she relates to the Hispanic community um, and kind of saying that all these... Uh, I'm similar to your grandmother. Um, and so then all these memes started coming up and people were like, you don't represent my grandmother. You're like, you know, you can't just pretend that you do these things that Latinos do and try to say that you're like my grandmother.
7: And I think that's one of the reasons why Hillary's been um, tough for a lot of millennials to, uh, to support is because she's seen as not an authentic candidate. And um, whether you want to go into the whole sex issues surrounding that or not, but it's clear that someone like Bernie Sanders is it does come off as more authentic and more genuine and that's really important to millennials throughout their lives, not just in their political choices.
9: I completely agree with that, um, especially because I, a lot of the people around me are like, well, Hillary Clinton seems to only speak about this when she thinks that she's gonna get somebody to go and vote for her, um, versus like, this is in her platform and this has been in there the whole time, um, instead of, okay, along the way, she's been changing her mind about things and. And you notice that you know, like whether you're you started like um, with certain ideas in the beginning, and then you've been changing. Like, can we really trust you? Yeah.
10: I mean, that's what comes with having decades of experience and working in politics. Is that like, yeah, you've changed your mind on big issues. Just like I've changed my mind, you know, on over over the course of my life over you know uh, m- many issues. And I think the authenticity. I mean, I'm gonna this is probably gonna be unpopular, but I get I actually do get annoyed. Um, with the way that that, that some millennials um, choose candidates as like and, and I think Obama is a perfect example of someone who is totally authentic and and or or appears to be very authentic and energizes and it's and, and inspires. but I don't think that that's how we should choose who leads our country. like I don't necessarily I, I think I would want to have a beer with Hillary Clinton like for sure um, but I also think that's not what should determine. Um, who should be the leader of you know the free world?
8: I think the politics of authenticity are so interesting because um, interpersonally, when people say, "Well, I'm just keeping it real," I'm just being honest. It's usually after they've said something incredibly rude, right? right? You know, that's, that's I'm just keeping it real now. And then if you take that to the next level of communication, people say, "Well, I'm just not about that political correctness," and I'm like, "Okay, but have you noticed that you're being politically incorrect almost always skews towards you saying something incredibly." offensive as opposed to something challenging, right, you know? Um, And so, you know, and again, I feel the same way. I look to effectiveness. That's what I'm more interested in. I'm not trying to have brunch with Hillary Clinton, and I'm not trying to have anything with Donald Trump. Mm. I'm interested in a leader who can get things done, who can face what appears to me to be one of the most intractable Congresses this country has ever seen. And so, you know, knowing that authenticity is just something that's, that's just a veneer. I I, I don't trust it. And I think, um, I hope, I hope all voters can move past that as a concern because I think it's used as a weapon. I think it's used against uh, women. I think it's used against people of color in manipulative ways. And I think straight white men—it's like, well, what does it mean to be an authentic straight white man, rich and powerful? Oh, you got it. You know, so it's like it's not a very fair fight or um, or, or platform, right. really.
5: This generation overwhelmingly leans left. Uh, You know, you can look at poll numbers recently that the Harvard Institute of Politics does. They do a a semi-annual poll on millennials. Overwhelmingly, it looks like Hillary Clinton has the support of millennials over Donald Trump. To the degree that you guys, I know not everyone maybe feels comfortable sharing, but could you tell us a little bit about how you ID politically and why? Or or was there a moment in time in which you sort of cognizantly made that decision to be a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent?
7: Oh, okay, well, okay, I'm definitely a Democrat. Um, Being a Republican was never, like, a a reasonable choice. I don't know. Um, Of course, can you uh, explain
5: that, why? Like, why was it never a reasonable choice for
7: you? Oh, just everything, so, I mean, it really, it's really consistent, and, and, and that's what's so impressive, right? Whether it's gay marriage or, or immigration or, or gun control or, or uh, you know, how we treat people who aren't white or how we treat immigrants. It's, it's every single issue. It's, it's, it's hard to believe why you would be on the other side. Um.
8: Uh-huh. You, asked, you asked. I mean, I, I think you know I, I certainly skew liberal um, for some obvious reasons, um, and, you know obvious reasons. Uh, you know, I'm black. If you can't tell, I'm gay. If you hadn't picked up on that earlier, um, you know, and so this, and so certain degrees, um, there are certain policy decisions that I feel are a matter of human rights, um, whether that is talking about um, criminal justice, whether that is talking about um, LGBT rights from. Um, same-sex marriage to now, you know, transgender people being able to use a restroom without being harassed. Um, so you know I obviously skewed that way, but also I don't trust anyone. Uh, I, I you know I, I think I'm I've been paying attention to politics long enough to learn that this binary is in fact pretty much an illusion. Um, if you know if a conservative candidate appeared who sounded effective, you know, who found a way to engage nuance. And honestly, the GOP right now is in such an interesting position where if you're going to draw a contrast to Donald Trump, you end up kind of sounding not that different from President Barack Obama when he was first running in 2008, you know? Um, I'll say also that I'm frustrated personally that it feels like there's only one viable presidential candidate. I think both parties should do a better job of giving us all effective options so it doesn't look like, well, we've got to go that way, or do we really want this alternative? No American should have to feel like it's an either-or voting dynamic, regardless of how you side
0: politically. Saeed Jones is an executive editor at BuzzFeed. He was on stage with other millennials. Forrest Sill is a student at the University of Chicago. Jessica Contreras is an immigration activist. Liz Plank reports for Vox, and Aswa Khalid is a political journalist for NPR. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado in late June. Next week, we'll take a break from politics and bring you a talk about creative ideas and how to best communicate them. Wharton School professor Adam Grant will shed light on how to speak up without getting silenced and how to find allies in unexpected places. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.